0: Well, it's so good again to be with you this morning, and uh, as we open up God's Word and we continue on with our series. In the beginning, um, we've uh, last week or two weeks ago we looked at the miracle of creation with Natalie, and then uh, last week looked at the miracle of man with Cookie, and today we're looking at the miracle of marriage. And I just wanted to start off today with a a quick story. I was. At home in New Zealand with my family, and we were down at the beach house where my sisters and uh, brothers-in-law they have a beach house, and we decided to go on an excursion one day down to the beach to the blowhole and experience the blowhole, etc., etc. And as we did, we all set off, and there was probably about 20 of us with all the in-laws and outlaws and the nieces and nephews, and we set off and about 15-20 minutes into the walk. Going down to this blowhole, Natasha walks across this field. And in this field, it looked perfectly innocent, but in this field, it was full of thorns. And Natasha wasn't wearing shoes. And so her feet, of course, got filled with thorns. And she started to cry and was very, very tearful. As any good dad, I got really irritated because we told our kids, no, when you're walking, you wear shoes, don't you? Especially when you're going across fields. And so, of course, being a good dad, I had to carry Natasha home. Everybody else went and enjoyed themselves at the blowhole. And I was there pulling the thorns out of Natasha's feet, albeit a bit grumpily at first, but then an opportunity for Natasha and dad to spend some time together. I tell you that story because of this. Today we're, we're touching on a subject that can at times be for some quite thorny, quite prickly. For some it might bring up memories of, that are quite painful and sore. And that's a difficult thing. Yeah. I've cried this morning preparing for this because I know the pain that sometimes this brings. I'm even feeling emotional now. But listen, it's not my heart to bring condemnation. It's not my heart to judge. My heart is to help perhaps pull some prickles out so that you can heal but my other heart is I want to put shoes on people so that they're protected from sometimes the heart and, and the hurt that can come if we are not acting correctly and biblically when it comes to marriage do you hear my heart in that so that, that's where we're going this morning so listen God created us for marriage God created us for relationship first and foremost he created us for relationship with himself But second of all, he created us for a relationship with one another. And there's one relationship in particular that should stand out above all others. And that is the marriage relationship. And we're just going to read from Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And we'll read through to the end of the chapter as we go along. But verse 18 says these words. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air he brought them to the man to see what man was to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature that was its name so the man gave names to all the livestock the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field but for Adam no suitable helper was found God recognized that God was not alone and He said that it is not. Good In Genesis chapter 1, we continue to read about everything that is good. God said that everything is good. He said it was very good. But here in Genesis chapter 2, we come across the first thing that God said is not good, and that is man being alone. Unlike himself, Adam had no equal to relate to. Though Adam had looked after the uh, the animals and named the animals, something was missing. It was that close, intimate companion that Adam required. And so God formulated this beautiful plan to create somebody like him, yet very different to him. Not somebody to compliment him. This is important. You are complete in who you are. You don't need a spouse to complete you. You are complete in who you are because Christ is in you. So it's not a companion to complete them, but it is a companion to compliment them. Someone who would be his equal counterpart, somebody who bore, like Adam, the image and likeness of God, yet was uniquely and purposely different, a suitable helper. It's good to note that in this, um, in this word here, helper is not a term identifying status or hierarchy. It's not a, a de- degrading term in any way. R. Kent Hughes states it this way. The woman would be a corresponding counterpart to the husband. More than anything, it can be a term identifying role and responsibility. Because helper means to come alongside. And as any good man will admit... We need people coming alongside. We need our wives. We need that helper coming alongside us, don't we? One who will be the champion of the husband when doing what is right and good and proper. But at the same time, one who will challenge the husband when perhaps the husband is not thinking correctly or there are better ways of doing things. Interestingly, God himself refers to himself as being Israel's helper. Over 20 times God says, I am the helper of Israel. God championed Israel when they wanted it, but he was not slow in coming and challenging Israel when they needed it, acting as savior in many of on many occasions. Therefore, helper can be seen as one who comes alongside to work, to support, to encourage, one who even acts as savior and preserver at times. Why is a wife good for that? Because they see things differently to a bloke. To the husband. If the role of the woman is described here in Genesis chapter 2 then, what is is there a, a corresponding role assigned to the man? Is there a corresponding role assigned to the husband? And as you read through scripture, you find that there is a role for the man. And in the Bible, it is often described as the head. Again, this is not a, a superior or a derogatory name. It's just a name more that more delineates responsibility and role. In Genesis chapter 2, you find the role of the head and the helper working together in unison. In the Garden of Eden, this role of helper and head, they worked together perfectly, i.e. that was they were in the perfect garden. That enabled it to happen. But what happened when it came to Genesis chapter 3? Sin entered the world, didn't it? And you see those roles now starting to come into conflict. And that conflict has carried on from Genesis 3 even to, to down through today. That's the way it's been since the fall. And with it has brought perhaps sometimes confusion between those different roles. And that's something that Satan has had a real heyday with. The order of both of those roles has been turned upside down and has been turned into something that God never intended. You see, God never intended headship to be power, to be control, to be preference, to be special authority. He never mentioned, he never wanted authority and headship to be delineated in that way. Neither did he want helper to be passive submission or compliant capitulation. No, our problem today is that sometimes, even in the church, we can get caught up with those titles and misunderstanding them. But if we understand them correctly, they can be just such a beautiful thing that enhances and blesses and enriches a marriage. I have here a, my job description. So when I came on staff a number of years ago, this was my job description. The title says, Executive Minister, full time for 35 hours per week. Yeah, I wish it was only 35 hours per week. (laughs) But the most important part to you and to God is not the title, what is. It's the job specifications that come underneath it, isn't it? Yes, we can get caught up in titles, but actually, it's the job specifications that come underneath it that are the most important. So does God give us... Job specifications for the head. Well, I think he does. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 30, we find some of the job specs of what it means for the head of the home. What is it that the head of the home should look like? And I just want to read uh, Ephesians 5 25 through husbands. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That was the job description that God gave as, his, as Christ's role for the church. But he uses that as the example for us as, as males, for us as husbands, for us as the head of the home. How did Christ love the church? What was the job specs? Well, Christ loved the church so much that he died for it. He gave himself up for it. And in dying for the church, what did he do? He sanctified it. He set it apart as something holy. He cleansed it. He spent time purifying it, washing it from its sin and unrighteousness. Why did he do all that? Guys, get this. He did that to present the church to himself as a radiant bride, without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish. Christ's whole desire, Christ's whole goal is to present you, the bride of Christ, to him on that day when we all reach glory without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, pure and holy. So here's the thought: If Christ did that as the head of the church and we are to model that as Christian husbands in our home and in our marriages, then we are husbands as called not to power and dictatorship or anything like that. We are called to die to self. To sacrifice our well-being for the good of our wives. We are called to create a sanctuary of holiness and purity in our homes. A place where our wives feel loved and cherished and secure. A place where our wives can flourish in their God-given pursuit and purposes that He's created them for. Encouraging our wives and releasing them to all be all that they can be in God. If you can do that and we can do that and I can do that with my wife, guess what? It also impacts the kids. So it's the husband and wife relationship, but it impacts the whole family. With the ultimate goal of this, to present before Christ your bride. Jordan, Michaela picked on you earlier. I'm giving you a challenge, Jordan. Your goal at the end of your marriage is to present Michaela perfect, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish in Christ. What a challenge that is. For the husband. Guys, that is what the husband is called to if we are to follow that model. It's a big responsibility. It's a big challenge. But folks, that's what God calls us to as a head. And if we get the headship right, the helpership will fall into place because the helper will know that we are serving the wife. We are giving and we are willing to lay down our lives, not just for our wives, but our family. We are willing to lay down our lives for her betterment. We are willing to lay down our lives so that she can be all she can be in Christ. And so you see the headship and the helpership working together in beautiful unity. Does that make sense? Hopefully I've explained myself there. Verse 21 and 22 then, just jumping back to Genesis. So here's what happens. God is now going to create this helper for Adam. Verse 21. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. A few things that we can pick up from here is this while adam was made from dust guess what ladies eve was made from something much better than dust she was taken from a living being she was taken from the side of adam eve was made or that word made there is actually built doesn't mean form doesn't mean it's actually built somebody took the time to think about even the building of her and it's not necessarily that word rib there doesn't necessarily mean the specific rib it could just mean just the side where god grabbed something the flesh the bone of of adam and from that created eve but I can't use. It says this, Eve was the first person to be created from a living being, not from the dust of the ground. Because she came from Adam, she perfectly shared the image and the likeness of God with him. Isn't that beautiful? Because she came from him, she shared in that same image. God's design implies a special and a unique bond between the man and the woman. She was made of the same stuff. She was made of the same essence as man, but yet separate different, distinct from all the other created beings. She was from his side. A a variety of sources um, use an analogy that why did God create Eve from the side of Adam? Well, it was not from his head to lord it over him. It was not from his feet to be trampled underneath him, but it was from his side to be his equal. It was from his side to to be loved By Adam with all of his heart. It was close to the arm to be protected by Adam. So, uh, just the first thought there is while Adam was formed, Eve was made and built. But the second thought from those words uh, there is this Adam was formed and brought to the Garden of Eden. Eve was made and then brought to Adam. God, as it were, on that special day of creation, was the Father of the bride. I smile because over this last year, I've had the opportunity to be father of the bride to two daughters. One of them got married when we can only have six in the wedding. Do you remember when COVID went into that shutdown and we had Natasha and Dan's wedding and only six of us? Proudest moment of my life to walk Natasha down the aisle to marry Dan. But then just two months ago, an equally um, blessed occasion, the pride of a dad to be able to walk your daughter down the aisle to meet the love of her life. Just brilliant. And I imagine that that's what God is going through right here. He's just a proud father. He's just a proud dad. He's coming in and saying to Adam, look what I've created for you. Here is your bride in all of her radiant splendor, pure, spotless, without wrinkle or blemish, radiant. How pleased God must have been on that day. And if God's response at the creation of woman was very good, what was Adam's response? I dare say Adam's response was, wow. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The first words spoken in the Bible were from God when he created the world. And as we read those words, we get this sense of wonder and awe at the God who just made everything that we see in this beautiful universe. But the first words spoken by man, what are they all about? The first words spoken by a man were all about the creation of a woman. They were about the creation of a woman. Of Eve. And again, I think we should get the sense of wonder and awe that God took care to bring us into that, to give us a relationship where you had a man and a woman, a husband and a wife coming together in something that was so special. Moses captures this sense of wonder and glory because he writes these words in poetic form. If you look at the structure of it in your Bible, you'll see that it's that, that verse is indented. Why? Because Moses records it as being written in poetic form. I think Moses wanted us to understand the beauty of this wow moment. Because writing poems takes time. It takes effort. It takes creativity. It's very precise, considered language. God wanted us to know that there is something special about this marriage union that was about to take place. I've got this teddy bear here. Because this teddy bear... um, is very special to Debbie and I. This teddy bear represents uh, the day that I proposed to Debbie. It's a little teddy bear with a little bit of a pack in. And uh, I have to tell you this, I was in the doghouse on the day that I proposed. Why? Because I had I'd already bought the ring, though Debbie didn't know it, but I'd taken, to Debbie, uh, taken Debbie down to New Zealand to meet all my family, didn't propose. And she thought that I perhaps would we then went to America where I met all of my, well, uh, she got to meet all of my working buddies at Ambassadors. And again, she thought, and some of you guys even in the church thought, well, she's going to come back with a ring on her finger. And she didn't. We got back here and she's irritated. She's annoyed because she wanted a ring on her finger. So what did I do? I had to do something special. I felt like I had to do something special anyway. And so we, um, we, we went on a trip to Chester and I, I put a ring in this little um, backpack here. But the best part was, the, one that the, the, the thing that took the effort was, I wrote a poem as a proposal. So I didn't just get down on my knee, but I actually wrote a poem. I would love to read you that poem, but I've been forbidden by my wife because it's personal. <laughs> But the idea is that needed to be, and I wanted that to be a special wow moment for me. I want it to be a special wow moment for us. And so I wrote a poem. And that's exactly what Adam is doing here. That's what Moses records for us. This is such a special moment that he chose to write it in poetic form. As Moses records Adam's first words, it appears as if Adam is perhaps surprised. He's stunned. He's exclaiming, God, amazing, wow, this is now bone of my bones, this is flesh of my flesh, God, you've done a brilliant job, thank you so much. He recognizes something in her, something that he did not recognize in any other created being. Now he's no longer the only human, now he's no longer alone. And so he marks the solemnity of that occasion by naming her, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Adam is so delighted, he's so pleased, he's so in awe that he names her. But he doesn't just name her any name. He gives him a name that is part of himself. In Hebrew, the, man, the, the, the word for man is ish. The word for woman is isha. So really, as he names her, actually, he's including himself in that. It's a probably a bit like, you know, when parents, when they, they get a child, don't they? They name them after themselves, like John Jr. or Michaela Jr. Or they do something special. Why? Because they want that, that, that specialness of the relationship to be carried out in the naming of that person. It's a very special time. And that's exactly what's happening here. Adam wanted and chose to have Eve represented in his name. And then we get perhaps to some of the the, the, the quite exciting but challenging words of this passage. Verse 24. Follow along with me. It goes like this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve became one, The blessed mystery of marriage is the two people becoming one. People opposite in so many different ways. Different and unique in character, personality, design, purpose. But yet in that, the mystery of marriage is God seeing those two people coming together as one and being knitted together as one. In these verses, we begin to see some of the guidelines, some of the boundaries for marriage, if you will. And as you read through the rest of scripture, you begin to see some of these truths uh, highlighted. You see these truths played out. The first thought is this, is that marriage is exclusive. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is to be reserved for a husband and a wife only. That stipulation initiated in Genesis chapter 2 remains consistent throughout the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation while society and culture might throw out other models god only recognizes and honors the marriage between a husband and wife and i think we need to be really challenged by that and today in today's culture and the many different things that are challenge us in that are we going to follow what god says or are we going to bend to what is politically correct and cultural my challenge is we need to follow this marriage is exclusive a husband and a wife second thought is marriage is enduring god wants marriage to last the lifetime god's design in the marriage covenant is until and until death do we part a man is to leave his mother and his father and is to be united to his wife i love the way that the old king james phrase it the king james phrase it they are to leave and cleave to leave mum and dad and cleave to his wife. The English Standard Version puts it this way to leave the mum and the dad and hold fast to his wife. Now, listen again, I know that marriages fail, and God has made provision for that to a degree. I say to a degree because I think in society and even in some churches, uh, we, we make divorce too easy. But God's intention right from the start is that when a husband and wife make that commitment, when they, when they, make, when they make that covenant, because that's what it is, it's a covenant before God. God desires that it last the lifetime until someone passes. God's ideal plan for the husband and wife is to cleave, to hold fast, to remain until death do us part. And again, sometimes that doesn't happen. And again, God can just step in. God knows how to forgive. God knows how to cleanse. God knows how to pull the thorns out, and God knows how to heal. And some of us might be in that place. I would just encourage us, come before God and let Him heal us in that way. The third thought is this, from those verses, is marriage is exclusive, marriage is enduring, and then lastly, marriage is expressive in creating Eve God gave Adam someone with whom he could be intimate and tender expressing his love not just mentally and emotionally but physically as well sexual intimacy is one of the great joys it's one of the great delights of marriage it's the blessing and privilege of showering love affection and tenderness on one another it's the opportunity to build bonds of togetherness. It's the ability and the opportunity to affirm a depth of love for one another. And it leaves both with a, just a sense of joy and pleasure that is like no other to be experienced. Sex is a wonderful, wonderful gift of God. But the thought is this, it is a gift reserved for marriage alone. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says, marriages should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexual, sexually immoral. Christians, God places high value today on remaining sexually pure. Yes, there is forgiveness and restitution if we fall in this area, just like any other. As I said before, God is good at pulling out the thorns. He's good at healing the pain. He can do that. But sexual sin can bring pain, hurt, rejection, and enduring consequences like no other sin. And therefore, I share this with you because if I can do this, if I can at least through this message, help you put shoes on your feet so that for those of us who are not yet married and are considering marriage or about to be married or wanted in the future, that you've got sandals on your feet so that as you walk through that field, you won't get stung, you won't get hurt. You don't have to go through that pain. The reason... Sorry, I've lost my place. Yeah. Can I urge all of us, therefore, to guard ourselves against falling into this trap of adultery or sexual sin? Don't let yourself be tempted by it. And if you are caught up in any way in that, can I encourage you, stop it. Plain and simple. Stop it. It's not okay. God calls it sin. But like with any sin, we can come to the cross We confess, we can repent, we need to turn around, but we need to walk in holiness and righteousness. Why is that? Because God wants a bride that is pure, holy, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. One of the beautiful things in marriage as I come to a close is seeing two people come together as one. Not just on the physical side, but on the mental, emotional, and spiritual side as well. Some of the best advice we can give to our young people considering marriage or about to step into that is that to work hard at finding a future spouse with which you can share a mental, emotional and spiritual oneness. One of the reasons for dating, and I don't know the the correct term to use these days, whether it's dating, courting or going out, whatever it might be. But those are the times that you use to discover your compatibility in the areas of mental oneness, emotional oneness, spiritual oneness. That means a lot of talking. That means a lot of sharing. That means a lot of being open and honest about dreams and desires and what you believe. It means sitting down and asking the hard questions. Are we right in being together? The reason we abstain from sex during the dating, courting, going out period is to be able to discern if you are compatible in those other three areas. It's to to discern if you are choosing the right partner for you. Because if you climb into bed with somebody too early, before you've asked those questions, before you've made those commitments, because of the nature of sex is so pleasurable, it's so glorious, it can often cloud our decision-making. It can often cloud our judgment. It can often make it cloud our ability to question, is this partner right for me? Why? Because we enjoy the pleasure of sex. And so I just encourage you, it, for, for those of you guys contemplating marriage, young, old ones, whatever, really focus on Not the sexual side yet. That will come. You don't have to worry about compatibility. That will come. What you want to find out is, am I compatible with this person mentally, emotionally, and most of all, spiritually? That's a big, big challenge. But it will protect you. It's like putting the shoes on the feet. As you walk through this field, courting, dating, going out is discovering that compatibility spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Marriage then becomes the expression. It becomes the outpouring of that. Yes, we are going to be compatible and you're able to express it there physically. Band, if you had come up, just want to finish there. But the final thought is this marriage. It's a beautiful gift. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Marriage, it's an exclusive, holy, blessed union of two people. Two people committed to God. Two people committed to one another. Helping one another in the journey of presenting the other to Christ without stain, without wrinkle or blemish. Holy and blameless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you for the gift of marriage. It truly is a blessed gift. I want to say thank you for the joys that we all experience in marriage. And there are many rich, rich blessings. But too, Father, we know that there can be tremendous hurts in marriage. Father, I pray that you would help us to be good at seeking, first of all, your forgiveness, but seeking forgiveness of one another. Lord, for those of us who have been hurt, Lord, we ask that you would continue just to pull out those thorns, continue that healing work. But Lord, I too just want to pray for those who are contemplating marriage. It's in their future. God, I just ask that you would give them great, great wisdom. I pray that you would give them great, great discernment, both for them and for future spouses. Lord, that their great desire would be to present themselves And their future spouse before you, holy, pure, blameless, without spot or wrinkle. And God, may that be the challenge for all of us. Father, I pray for husbands and wives here. God, I just pray that you would bless the marriage union of our home. May we create that environment of holiness and purity where both both spouses can just grow in holiness Where both spouses can just grow in 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 the expression of who you are in our lives. Just be experience that freedom to be and to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of you. But Lord, as we do that, it doesn't just stay with the husband and wife. But Lord, may it be passed down to our children. May it be passed down to our grandchildren. God, more than anything, I just pray that every marriage in here today would be a reflection of your great love for the church. Because you've taken somebody that was imperfect, but loved them perfectly. God, help us to emulate you in that, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.